English author G.K. Chesterton wrote about 100 years ago that tolerance is the virtue of a man without convictions. Amidst all the wonderful things that this church in Thyatira is getting right, and she is getting some wonderful things right, we'll talk about that, she's getting one big thing wrong, and that thing tends to poison all the good. She's tolerating evil teaching, which leads to evil living. Let me go ahead and read the, the text. And to the angel, this is Revelation 2.18 and following. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. See, those are wonderful things. We'll, we'll unpack that. But he goes on. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, <clears throat> who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This church in Thyatira, in Thyatira, in Thyatira is sort of the inverse of the first church out of the seven, Ephesus. Ephesus, if you remember, uh, had great doctrine, and she had more. She was persevering. Um, she was doing everything right, except the main thing. She had great doctrine. She was contending for the faith. She was ethically pure, and she was persevering, but her love had faded. Her love for Christ, and therefore her love for her neighbor. Uh, her love had faded. But Thyatira is the inverse. Thyatira's love is ardent, it's waxing, but she's permitting bad doctrine. She's permitting evil doctrine. Uh, she's allowing it to go unchecked. She's not disciplining the member that's spreading it. And this is leading to sin of all sorts. And the principle here is this, that bad doctrine leads to bad living. Theology and ethics are intimately wed. Uh, let me quote Gonzalez here. While the message to Ephesus warns the church about the dangers of loveless orthodoxy. So, well, we'll get to this later, but think of a, a reformed, solid, reformed, doctrinally sound church that's dry as dust, right? Well, the message to Ephesus warns the church about the dangers of loveless orthodoxy. The message to Thyatira warns against the dangers of a soft love that tolerates all things and judges none. Craig Keener notes, by tolerance here, we mean not the biblical virtue of loving those who disagree with us. That's not tolerance but the intellectual paralysis that comes from fear to disagree. 
It's a sort of laziness and a fear. So some stats, 72, this is an old stat. This is decades old. 72% of Americans between 18 and 25 years old believe there is no such thing as absolute truth. The number is near, and this is again old, it's near 50% for professing born again Christians. The numbers are likely higher now, maybe far higher. Years ago, Alan Bloom wrote an incisive book called The Closing of the American Mind. I'd highly recommend it. He taught for 30 years at the University of Chicago, and he said that he could count on one thing from almost all of his incoming freshmen. They didn't believe in absolute truth. They'd say something like this, you cannot know ultimate truth. If you think you have the absolute way of truth, then you're very dangerous. This is, this is called relativism. It's rife in our society today. This was decades ago for Bloom. It's even worse now. It's, it's the prevailing orthodoxy, if I can say that. Um, it was a problem in the church in Thyatira in a, in a sort of different way, right? They were not holding firm and steadfast to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of Christ, to the truth of his inscripturated word, to the truth of the scriptures. Um, this, this relativism is, is self-defeating. It's oxymoronic and therefore idiotic. Um, it, it says something like, it is absolutely true that there is no absolute truth. It's self-defeating. It's the sign of decay in a society when this uh, reigns supreme, which it does in ours. Pilate, though, it's not, it's not new, right? Thyatira struggled with it some, but you see it, you see it pervasive in the Roman world. One of the rulers in the Roman world, Pilate, uh, infamous through his uh, allowing Christ to be crucified. If you, if you look at John eighteen thirty eight, he says to Jesus, what is truth? It's a very jaded statement made by a man who has been influenced by, by Rome, by Roman philosophy and worldview. So Pilate embraced this sort of relativism to a degree at least. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a sign of decay at that time in the Roman Empire, which we see play out over the next centuries. But Christ came along and he said, I am the truth. Uh, he pro- uh, Christians went on to proclaim this upon Christ's resurrection from the dead and ascension and pouring out of his spirit. And we proclaim it to this day. It changed the empire, even as the empire of Rome faded, the empire of Christ, the kingdom of Christ grew and grew and grew like a mustard plant like yeast and bread. And it changed the empire. It pervaded the empire. And it's been spreading out through the world and changing the world ever since. It, it continues to do that. Christ stands here before the church in Thyatira saying, I am the truth. Love, but love and truth. Never compromise on either side. John tells us in his gospel, Jesus came full of grace and truth. You know, the cross, it shows us the grace of, of God, the fact that favor is conferred upon us through no good of our own, but through the good of another, Jesus Christ, by faith in him. But it also, the cross also shows us its truth. It shows us how offensive our sin is to God and what our sin required to make us right before him. It required the death of the Son of God. And worse than that, if I can say this, the, the eternal death, I won't say eternal because he didn't stay dead, but the infinite Consequence: The wrath of God poured out uh, on Jesus Christ. It, it shows us how seriously God takes sin and how serious our evil is and how pervasive and how deep. Um, so, 
uh, to quote a commentator, there is for Jesus's followers a right intolerance, one born not out of lack of love, but out of a commitment to the truth of who Jesus is and the allegiance he calls us to. Tolerance and softness on truth doesn't, um, in permissiveness, it doesn't help us. It doesn't, it's not loving to the world either because it, it's, it's an open door to hell. Um, G- people, we, people hated Jesus so much because he is the truth. His very presence convicted them and he spoke truth at all times that they nailed him to a cross. We are so offended by God that we murdered him. Of course, he used that to save us. And so Jesus is truth and grace. He offers both, and we ought to as well as we preach the gospel. Um, license and permissiveness are not love. They hate those um, that, they, uh, that they are on offer to because, like I said, they're an open door to hell. Okay, so just a bit of context here at the church in Thyatira. It's the this is the longest of the seven. This is the longest of the words of the seven to the seven churches in Turkey. Uh, at two hundred twenty-two Greek words, it's in the middle, so it's the fourth. So you have churches one, two, three before it, and then you have churches five, six, and seven after it. So it's right here in the middle of the seven, and there's so there's this swell, uh, there's this bulge in the middle of these churches. So John is always doing stuff like that. He's always creating patterns and everything he does, he does on purpose. And of course, this is God's word. So it's perfect in all sorts of ways, hidden as well as explicit. Um, one thing that you see here, just a bit more of context before jumping in um, fully. But one thing we see here too, is we see a call here uh, not to tolerate. And we see here, therefore compromise through tolerance. And sort of in the background here is there, the guilds were a big part of the Roman world, certainly in cities and certainly in Thyatira. Um, they were big in this city, trade guilds. So, for instance, you had dyers, you know, like um, dyers of, of, of animal skins and of other textiles. You had wool merchants, linen workers, cloth cleaners, coppersmiths, potters, tanners, leather cutters, and bakers. And you'd be part of a consortium, part of a, a guild if you were in these trades. And these guilds, there was no, there was no hard divide between uh, the practical workaday guild and then religious association and worship. They were mixed in the ancient Near East, and they are in many parts of the world uh, today. You know, it, there was no such thing as religion has no part of the, in the public sphere. That was that was ludicrous. It still is, but it, it reigns supreme today. Um, so, in other words, to be part of these guilds meant that you had a you had a job, could keep your job, you could trade with others and sell your wares and stuff. But, but then mixed into that was was often pagan feasting of which sexual immorality was a part. And so, to be a guild member, you had to partake in these sorts of things, and to abstain from these sorts of things often meant it would cost you your job, or or you wouldn't be able to trade as well. You wouldn't make as much money at the very least. In a lot of cases, so so to compromise um, oftentimes meant that you could keep your job and and stay making a brisk living, um, but uh, to not compromise was often literally costly. Sometimes with a life, sometimes with a job, sometimes with a, a big cut in pay, sometimes with social snubbing and being cast out and being excluded. So one question for us is, and we can relate to that, right? Are, and increasingly in the West, are you willing to suffer financially 
if your stand for Christ requires it? Are you willing to suffer physically? He suffered for us. He suffered infinitely for us. So this is just briefly, briefly, as briefly as, uh, not as briefly as, but, but sort of in proportion to how brief his commendation of this church is, we can kind of miss, and let me be brief here on this first point, this is an amazing church. I mean, that's the first point. This is an amazing church. We can miss that because there's so much time spent on his rebuke. And we'll talk about that. But just in one verse, verse 19 alone, he packs in, we can, we can miss how great this church is and all the stuff is doing right because it's so brief. But it's really packed in here. Um, they had f- love. Let me just read it again. I know your works, your love. So again, Christ knows he does not overlook what we're doing, what we're abstaining from. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. That's the, that's the verse and that's all the commendation they get. Um, but that's a lot. Think about, this is briefly unpacked. They had love, the chief virtue. That's, again, it's what, this is church is sort of the inverse of Ephesus. Ephesus got everything else right, but lacked love. And so their heart, it was like a, it was like, a, they were like a corpse. They had the whole body structure and everything perfect, but no heart. So, so in other words, a cadaver, worthless. Um, I won't say worthless because Christ commends them, but man, with, that, with no beating heart. I mean, that's what, so, so, so Thyatira, they had love, ardent love, growing love, and all, and, and all their works were growing. They're, they're, they had faith. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, these three remain at the end of that beautiful, that beautiful encomium to true love as discovered through God in Christ, giving himself for us and bringing us into the, back into the love relationship we were made for with him and with others. Um, this encomium on love, 1 Corinthians 13, an encomium on love. Uh, he ends the last verse by saying, these three remain, faith, uh, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And so they have love, they have faith, without which it's, it's impossible to please God. They have service, so they, they have hands and feet to, their, uh, to what they say they believe. They're serving the poor, they're serving one another, they're serving the world. And they are growing in these things, right? It's amazing. They have, uh, like the Ephesian church, they have patient endurance. I mean, we are in great need as Christians of endurance, even more so as the church is persecuted. And it certainly is being persecuted here. Um, we have a great call all throughout the scriptures to endure. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. I'm reading a book right now that's called the... Um, I'm looking forward here. The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. And it's just a, it's a true scholarly work by a true scholar and pastor. Um, just about how patience, I haven't made my way through the book totally yet, but he seems to be saying that patience was one of the chief virtues. And in many cases, the chief virtue, which is surprising to me, of the early church for the first few hundred years of its existence. Patience patiently enduring persecution, patiently loving, patiently proclaiming the gospel faithfully day in, day out, patiently saying no to the allure, the allurements of the world. Um, Patience and long suffering and perseverance are needed for the long race. Christ was patient. He endured. He suffered long until the very end so that he could say, 
It's one of the last things he said on the cross. What? It is finished to tell us die. He finished the work for us. Thank God he did. If he had not dotted the I and crossed the T and finished the work and drunk the wrath of God down to the dregs, heaped up against our sins, not his, then we would be, we would have no hope. We would be headed to hell. We would be enclosed by death forever. We would be prisoners of Satan in our own sin and self. But he finished the work and he calls us to endure and to persevere. So this church has all that and almost as a, as a capstone of all this, man, they are, as a wonderful flourish, they are growing in all these things. It's not that he's seen them in the past and they're fading now. They're actually growing more. They're waxing in their works. It's wonderful. So, so that's, that's his church. But the rest of the time, and then he finishes with the promises, of course, the wonderful promises. Um, this is an amazing church, but they were permissive. They're a loving church. They're a faithful church. They're serving. They're persevering. They're growing, but they are they're permissive. And why does he spend so much time on this? I mean, just in short, I think, I don't know. But oftentimes what we're doing wrong, we need, we need an authority figure who loves us in our lives to put the finger on and to press the pause button and to look us in the eyes and say, look at me, stop. That's what you do as a parent, right? Hang on. I'm encouraging you. I'm loving you. But in loving you, I'm grabbing your face. I'm telling you to stop whatever you're doing, to look me in the eye. And we're going to have a talk and we're going to sit down and stop moving. And that's really what Jesus does here. We need to hear, we're blind to these things or willfully disobedient just by the very fact that they're having to be addressed. And so we need time spent on them. And he does that here. He drives the nail in deep. Um, And he says, look, you are permitting false teaching, which is leading to false living and permissiveness and sexual promiscuity and other things and it's going to burn it's going to burn you down it's going to give me a bad name it's going to mean that people don't come to christ it's going to corrupt my body it's going to do all sorts of evil continue to do all sorts of evil so repent and 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 you know we see the the amazing call even to this one person there's a woman in the church apparently who's spreading all this stuff around and he even he calls her out certainly again it's out of love because she's not helping herself or anyone else. She calls herself a prophetess. But he says, he, the call, if you notice, the call is to her to repent. He's, even, he's holding out his hands to her. He's not saying, I'm going to wipe the plate clean with her. He's saying, I've told her to repent. She hasn't. I'm calling again. I'm having John write to this church in particular. I know your works. I see your works. Nothing gets past me. I'm calling you again in writing for all the church, for all of history to see. He knows, he knows when we're walking in sin. He knows our individual sins and he offers his hand and he says, come to me, repent, turn away from these things, turn back to me um, and let the church wrap its arms around you and do it in community, okay? And get that sin out in the open. Um, so they, this, this church hold, holds loosely to the truth of Christ. They're heavy on love, light on truth. And that's, you know, again, just to sort of use, I told you we'd come back to this, but kind of use some, to use some tropes that we uh, might be more familiar with. You could think of a, a conservative Presbyterian or Baptist Bible-believing church, confessional, creedal, um, that's, that's dry. Um, uh, that, that would be Ephesus. That's just, they're not loving as they should, the Lord or one another. They're, they're, their love is not ardent and pulsing and hot for the Lord. He desires that. He died for that. 
He is love. He came to bring us into his love, to grow in that, to, to, to revel in that, to immerse ourselves in that, to marinate in that, to share that with others, to be ravished by him. And, um, and so, uh, you know, the, F, the Ephesian church would be like, could be like a, you know, a staunch, conservative, faithful uh, Presbyterian or Baptist church that's got solid doctrine, but isn't, isn't living out. They're missing the whole point of doctrine, which is, which is the beating heart of love. But this church is, is, is kind of more like a, like a charismatic church or um, I didn't say the charismatic. They're, they're healthy, doctrinally sound charismatic, but like a, like many charismatic churches that I've seen, like, like a mainline church, perhaps that's, that's social gospel. That's really doing a lot of good in the community. But doctrinally, both churches um, can be really light, and that has major consequences. Um, it really hurts people, and it's tied to the way that we live. And so he's saying to hold true to the gospel, which is not just the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's the A to Z. It's, the gospel is Genesis to Revelation. It's not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? that we don't graduate from it. So he says, you've tol- I have this against you that you've tolerated Jezebel. That word tolerate can mean, I'm going to the Greek dictionary here, it can mean, quote, to convey a sense of distancing th- through, it, through an allowable margin of freedom. So they gave, they gave this woman just kind of room to teach instead of admonishing her, which is painful. It's hard to have those conversations. They thought they were loving in doing that. They didn't want to slap her wrist, but it's not loving. It's not loving to her or anyone else, believers in the church, those that haven't yet been reached by the gospel, unbelievers, the world, because the gospel is not going to get out to them in a pure form, and it's going to corrupt the church, and that's going to be a bad witness. The church is going to think, oh, this is what Christ looks like, sexually permissive, etc. Um, so to go on with the, the definition... Um, you can convey a sense of distancing through an allowable margin of freedom to leave it to someone to do something, to let, to let go, to allow, to tolerate. Man, to let sin go, to let loose doctrine go without addressing it. I've been guilty of that. As a leader, as leaders in the church, uh, it can be hard to have those conversations. It can seem more loving just to let those things to give those things just room to grow and to, and to let, to let them, uh, to let those people continue to teach and continue to teach bad doctrine. That's not loving. It's poisonous. So Jesus sternly rebukes it here and spends a lot of time on it. Okay. And we have, we have a house church model, uh, thanks to COVID in our church. And, and as much of the ancient church did, as much of the the church today still does around the, around the globe. It's even more important with that sort of model to have a real firm handle on uh, the solid, confessional, orthodox, biblical doctrine of the church because right doctrine leads to, leads to right living. And at the heart of that, of course, is ought to be and needs to be love. Um, the modern Western church is fond of saying things like, my God is a God of love and thinking of Jesus as loving and that's all. But Jesus is also the judge. We see that here. We see that in Revelation. He disciplines his own out of love. He will send many millions to hell who do not run to him for cover from the wrath of God. We see that at the end of Psalm 2. We see it at the end of John 3. The wrath of God abides on those who don't hide for cover in the lamb who took the wrath of God for them. We see that in Revelation all throughout. Revelation six sixteen through 17. People are fleeing from the wrath of the lamb. He took 
God's wrath for us on the cross. But if we don't hide in him by faith, we will bear that wrath forever. That is a part of the cross that is not preached often enough. And it makes the cross so much more meaningful to us. That is part of the gospel that we must believe and live in line with and preach. And the, the gratitude that will swell in our hearts and, and, and lead to pure living that comes out of that. Not, out of, not because we feel compelled from some outward stricture, but because we want to, because we trust the Lord, because of what he did for us and what he endured for us and all that it cost him and what our sin cost him. And, what our, and um, we just think about the consequences of that. It, it's all connected, doctrine and ethics. Um, and again, like I said, he has this, we, even in his rebuke in verses 21 through 23, we see his tender heart for this woman in particular, and for this capacious offer of repentance and renewal that he gives to her. He calls her again to repent, to turn and to trust in him. These promises that just in closing that Jesus gives are wonderful. They're always wonderful, but these are exceptional to this church. She says, he says to them in verse 25, to hold fast, to keep my works until the end in verse 26. And again, as we've talked about, endurance is a mark of the true Christian. It's not a mark of the exceptional Christian. It's a mark of the true Christian. Craig Keener, uh, keenly, um, I didn't mean to make that pun, but it just kind of came out. Mm, apologies. Uh, Craig Keener says, uh, he, ma- he makes the point um, toward the end of this section here that he says that, you know, the Calvinist says that the truly saved will not fall away. That's called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And the Arminian, who believes that we have free will when it comes to uh, choosing God and salvation, um, we can choose God, we can reject God. Uh, The Arminian says that those who fall away have, not that they uh, were never saved, but they've lost their salvation. But so they disagree on that. But here he says, here's what they agree on. That those who fall away uh, are not Christians. They're not God's children. And they will end up in hell under the just judgment of God. Um, perseverance is crucial in the Christian life. It is, the, it is a mark of the, of the Christian, of the true Christ follower. We're, call, we're called over and over again by Christ himself to conquer, to hold fast, to keep his works to the end. Um, we see that really strongly in this call to Thyatira. But it is in the midst of all that, at the end of all that, underneath all that, around all that, we have to remember John ten twenty eight. it is Christ himself who keeps us. We need to rest in that and to abide in that. But a mark of that is that we, we will persevere to the end. We will endure. Doesn't mean we're never going to fall. Doesn't mean we're not going to sin. We will sin. John elsewhere in his letter says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar when the truth isn't in you. Um, but the righteous falls seven times and gets up again, right? Um, we should not presume on Christ keeping us, but we should rest in it. And doing that will help us to run the straight race, to quote Eric Little, and to go the distance, to quote Rocky Balboa. That's right. I just quoted Rocky. Um, you know, praying a prayer and walking an aisle is not proof that one is converted, but bearing fruit and persevering, those things are. So Doug Kelly says this. He says, so Jesus says to these, these people this word, hold fast. Hold on to the one true saving gospel. Hold on to the one way to heaven and the new creation. I inserted that through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ as the only way. 
So these promises that he gives, as I said, they're amazing. Um, In verse 26, he says, I will give you rule over the nations. There's so much striving in this world. I mean, Ukraine uh, has Russia on her border, even as I speak right now. 2022, Putin, Vladimir Putin, uh, seeing himself, fancying himself uh, a czar, a Russian czar of old, uh, is, is, is on the precipice. He's on the He's on the cusp of invading Ukraine, and who knows this could lead to a, what this could lead to another world war. Um, you know, the nations are vying for power. They're vying for dominion. Adam was given dominion. He lost it through his disobedience. Jesus, as the second Adam, regained it by giving his life as a ransom for many. And he offers. He has all authority. He tells us and he tells his disciples in Genesis in in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to him because he won it back. And he won it back for us and he has it on offer. He says, "I've got it and I you will rule the nations." You know, heaven is not a Gary Larson cartoon. Heaven's going to come down to earth and God's going to remake all of creation. And whereas Adam had uh it's not, you know, there won't be heaven is not strumming harps on clouds. There will be rule and adventure and decision and um, creation, building and exploring and playing and feasting. All of, you know, nothing is that is good will not remain, St. Augustine. All the things that we love in, in a good way, rightly love in this, in this life are just whispers of what's coming. They're just shadows of the real and firm and opaque and hard and substantial reality that we are headed toward. And so he's going to give us real rule over the nations um, if we hold fast to him and are held fast by him. And then he also uh, promises the morning star uh, in verse 28. And that's a bit more mysterious, but a bit of Old Testament digging and thinking about Roman culture can help. Um, So... The morning star, there are a few things here. Numbers twenty four seventeen talks about a star that's going to come out of Judah, and that is Messianic. Um, Christ was born out of the tribe of Judah. We knew that the, scholar, the Old Testament scholars knew that the Messiah was going to come from that tribe, and Jesus indeed did, and that he would reign, and indeed he does reign. Um, and also in Roman culture, the star signified divine, signified divine status. It was on some of their coins. So Rome uh, promises reign and power and advantage, and increasingly our government, overstepping its proper bounds, does as well. Um, demands so much more from us than it used to. Um, demands even our obeisance and our worship, even though it's supposed to be a public servant. Because in large in large part, our government has... has uh, denied God and defies God and is seeking to take the place of God. But our government can't offer true reign and Rome couldn't either. I mean, think about it. You know, Rome at the time was almost, it seemed omni, omnipotent, omnicompetent. If you, if you weren't in league with Rome, what, what, what power did you have? And these, these, pers- these Christians are a persecuted minority. That's why John's writing from Patmos. He's been thrust out to this slave island off the west coast of Turkey. 
And yeah, Jesus, you have the authority. You can give it to whomever you will. You'll give eternal rule and reign over the nations. That's Rome's capacity. Think about Rome now. It seemed like a joke then. Rome is dust. The Roman Empire is gone, has been gone for centuries and centuries. In Jesus's kingdom, even now in these shadow lands, for the past 2,000 years, it has spread out, especially under persecution. Don't think the church in Ukraine is not going to grow if Putin, as Putin, invades. I pray he won't. And the church and the kingdom are not the same thing. The church, as we preach the gospel, sees the kingdom grow because the kingdom is within us. And it spreads out into culture as we preach the gospel and live Christ and love others and abide in the love of Christ that he's come, the love of God that Christ has come to bring us into. Rome turned, has turned to dust, but Christ's kingdom continues to spread out over all the earth. It was spreading out even then under persecution. When, when Christ rose from the dead, it was him alone and a few in a gaggle of followers. He had just been crucified. They extinguished the light. They tried to. And in the first century, it was still small, but spreading. And now it's over all the face of the globe. And for the first time ever, we have the chance in our lifetime to see the gospel preached to every in, in the heart language of every tribe and tongue. Um, and so, um, the morning star, also on the morning star, I will give you the morning star, he says, secondly, as well as the nations. Um, the morning star is Venus, which Romans associated with triumph and reign. And again, Jesus is saying that um, that is mine alone to give, not the government's, because I bought back all authority with my blood. We are freed by the blood of Christ. And there's a certain beauty in the morning star. There's a certain beauty. I find myself staring at Venus quite often, partly because I live in Houston. It's the only, quote, star that you can see in the sky sometimes. But it's a beautiful star of luminosity and, and brilliance, and, and, it gives, and there's a certain tranquility about it, and it's a harbinger of, of, things to co- of wonderful things to come. And I think there's something wrapped up in that as well. Um, he, there's Christ, there's so much promise to come wrapped up in Christ and what he's won for us. Uh, and Jesus himself, he is in, tw- in Revelation twenty two sixteen at the end of this book, we see that he himself is the bright morning star. He's the dawn of a new creation. Quote, to, to quote a, a commentator, he's heralding the dawn of the promised new creation of God. His resurrection wasn't just a guy rising from the dead. It was pulling a new type of human free from the bonds of sin free from the consequences of death and hell and Satan's domain, free from the ravages of death and sin, pulling a new humanity uh, into, out of death and out of the power of sin and Satan to a new place. He is the first fruit of a new bumper crop that's coming for all those who trust in him. And then a new creation will follow Romans, Romans chapter eight. Um, his resurrection started a new creation. We are soon to follow And then all things, quote, believers will continue to rule in the new creation for all eternity, Tom Schreiner. And finally, Doug Kelly, the whole universe will be bathed in the light of the face of Jesus. It is certain. It is coming. So to summarize, tolerance is not love. Secondly, judgment is God's alien work. He doesn't like to do it, but it is his work. 
He is doing it. He will do it if we do not repent and run to Jesus. And finally, thirdly, a new creation is coming and we will reign with him in it and he will give us his very self. We will see him face to face. And when we do that, it'll be so powerful that we'll be made like him fully and we will reign forever and ever. Amen.